Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, and indeed we rejoice. And nearly 2,000 years ago, there's a tomb that's empty. As Peter and John ran to the tomb to see what Mary had proclaimed to them, Peter arrives, and then John runs in, and he sees the napkin neatly rolled up. He says, grave robbers don't do this. <laughs> it is just as Jesus had foretold. He came, he died on a cross for our sins, and three days later, he was victorious over death and sin. And Father, we can sing this morning, we can rejoice because of what Christ has accomplished. And we thank you and we praise you in his glorious name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to the book of Acts. This is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you get to Acts. And Acts 3 is the text that we'll be looking at this morning might surprise you, this past week someone shared with me that Google Analytics showed that more people had searched for who is Jesus in the last eight weeks than the 20 years that they have been doing stats. Is that not exciting? Who is this Jesus? It's encouraging, but who is Jesus and why is he important can so easily get lost, can't it, in the chocolate bunnies? and the pastel colors. <laughs> In fact, I did my own Google search. I entered Easter last night and thought, what will I find in Google images? The first four pictures had nothing to do with an empty tomb. They were bunnies and chocolate covered whatever. It's so easy in the midst of celebrating Easter that we forget two very important questions. Who is this Jesus? And why is he so important? In Acts 3, which is a narrative, the book of Acts is a historical book. It's laying out the birth and development of the early church. It's a sequel to the gospel accounts. And in it, we see the development of the church and the questions being answered. Who is this Jesus and why is he important? Not just for the Jews living in Jerusalem, but for the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we get to Acts 3, verse 1. It says, Peter and John were going up to the temple, the time of prayer. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the text tells us. That's significant. We'll come back to that. And it says, a man lame from birth was being carried up, who was placed at the temple gate called the beautiful gate. Every day, so he could beg for money from those going on into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. Peter looked directly at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. You can just imagine, right? Oh, here it goes. They're going to give me something really good. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold. Uh, you know, he said, but wait, I have something that's far more significant. I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Then Peter took hold of him by the right hand and raised him up. And at once or immediately the man's feet and ankles were made strong. 
He jumped up, stood, and began walking around. He entered the temple courts with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people who saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with astonishment and amazement at what had just happened to him. If you're following along in the notes, whether that's online or here in person, you'll see there in the first part of this is we're setting the scene. Peter and John, this dynamic duo, part of the original 12 disciples, they're, they're mentioned several times through the Gospels. They are the two that were involved in a fishing industry. They prepared the Passover for Jesus, and they were the first two of the 12 disciples to be at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And we're told in the text that it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is significant. For the first century Jews practicing the temple courts, this is the time of the last incense of burning offerings. There were three times for prayer, nine o'clock in the morning, at noon, and at three. That's significant. In other words, this is the last crowd of the day. <laughs> if that lame man is supposed to get any money, this beggar, this is his last chance. Uh, apparently, he's not collected enough because he's not had anyone take him away from this location. I suspect it's not been very productive. And along comes another two individuals, and he's hoping to obtain some money. We're told that he's lame, and don't miss that in verse 2. What's the text say? Lame from birth. And we know in Acts 4, later, he is over 40 years of age. So this isn't someone who just happened to have a, a kink in the leg and all of a sudden now can walk. No, 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 no. The magnitude of the miracle is being highlighted. It's been 40 years. This man could not walk. He, he's been dependent on others to carry him, as the text tells us, and he's certainly dependent on handouts. As we are painting the scene, there are three very significant implications. Don't miss this. He was not allowed into the temple complex. Do you see verse 3? Where is he sitting? At the gate. He's not inside. Why? Well, he's considered unclean. That, those with deformities were not allowed. In fact, what the Jews believed in the first century, that his, his inability to walk was associated with sin. Remember John 9, when Jesus meets the blind man? What does the crowd ask? Who has sinned? This man or his parents? And I love Christ's response, by the way. He said, no one sinned. It's so that God could be glorified. In Jewish writings later in the Talmud, it states, Blessed be the righteous judge for those who are lame. So in the first century Jewish audience, this man is an outcast. He's unclean. He can't come to the temple. And think about the implications there with, you know, the bar mitzvahs for Johnny or whoever. You can't go in. You can't participate. The wedding ceremonies that go into the court of the women, you can't go in. He's banished. The worst part is, the text tells us, look at this, he's begging for money. An intertestament Jewish writing between the old and the new said it would be better to die than to beg. It was beneath a Jew to do such things. The thought, he is a so, he's, he's unclean, he's a social outcast. Of course, it does beg the question, where are the parents? Maybe at 40 years of age, they've passed on. 
But obviously there's no one to take care of him. He, he is this social outcast. And the text tells us, notice this, where is he at? At the temple gate called the beautiful gate. Now, I love pictures. They, they help. This is a, a model of what the second temple, Jewish temple at the time of Jesus would have looked like. It covered 35 acres. The Jewish writings uh, in the 200s AD said, if you've not seen the temple, you did not see a beautiful building. <laughs> so forget the Biltmore, forget the White House. This is the building you need to see. Uh, 35 acre complex. The beautiful gate, the scholars quibble over this, but I believe it was part of the holy gates, the triple gates on the east side. You would enter on the east, you'd come out the double gates there on the left, all considered the holy gates. And this would have been the main entrance into the temple complex. It was called beautiful because of the domes, the artwork that was there. And, and isn't it ironic? <laughs> Here is this unclean man considered disgusting to the culture of the day sitting at the beautiful gate. It is going to be beautiful for what is about to occur. But here we see this contrast. And it just so happens that Peter and John walk by. B.B. Warfield, who had taught at Princeton many, many years ago, made this statement. In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of his divine plan. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without his ordering or without his particular fitness for its place in the working out of his purpose. The end of all shall be the manifestation of his glory and the accumulation of his praise. God in his timing sent his son to earth to dwell among men. God in his timing saw fit that Pilate was the governor when Jesus was tried. God in his sovereignty raised his son from the dead three days later. And now this beggar, this lame man, this social outcast is gonna have the opportunity to experience something far greater. The money is the least of this man's problems. I mean, think about it. You could give him all the money you want. He could be the wealthiest guy around. It's not gonna rectify his health issue. No political system, no social program, no educational institution. Nothing can rectify his problem. I was trying to think through an analogy of this. It's kind of like a guy who's gone hunting and he, he kills this beautiful buck. And he's trying to load it in the back of his truck and he can't do it. And along comes a game warden. And he says, oh, could you help me, Mr. Warden, load this deer into the, my truck? Sure, I'd be happy to help. So they lift the buck into the truck. Now, and then the game warden says, by the way, can I see your hunting license? And the man goes, oh, I have to have a hunting license? <laughs> the least of his problems is getting the buck into the truck, right? Now he may not have a truck. Uh, the man was concerned about alms. And, and something far greater, his need is, is right here before him. And Peter understands this. And he says, hey, look at us. Look intently here, because I have something. Don't get distracted. And you can just imagine, it's 3 o'clock, Peter. I don't have much time left. Alms for the poor. <laughs> Alms for the poor. If you're not going to give me something, move out of the way. Alms for the poor. And Peter says, no, look at me. Stop looking around who you think is going to give you more money. Uh-uh. 
Silver and gold, he says, have I none? It's a, it's a phrase that's used of, of referring to minted coins, uh, money. I, I don't have any of that. And notice, Peter doesn't give anything of himself. What does he give to the man? He gives him the name of Jesus. <laughs> 50 years ago in England, Martin Lloyd-Jones made this comment. 50 years ago. Listen to what he writes. The problem of the world today is the direct, immediate, central problem that men and women do not know God. The problem in our society is they don't know who Jesus is and why he's important. And Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, I do not know how to live. They do not know how to die. This is the central problem that leads to all the misery, the unhappiness, the failure, the shame, the remorse, the agony, the bitterness, and the heartbreak of life. The church should be here to tell you that the paralysis that our society is facing is curable. It's curable in the one who died for us, was buried, and he rose again, and his name is Jesus. And just a side note to God's people for a moment. When the church seeks to provide answers that are apart from the gospel or added to the gospel, we're in trouble. <laughs> the busyness of the church is to address the real problem of men and women and to offer a cure for the paralysis. The church was never meant to be a social club, a shelter from the world, or a respite for the frozen chosen. We're here to serve as ambassadors of the gospel so that we can seek to glorify the Lord. And notice verse 6. Upon saying the name of Jesus, the man stands up. Well, he tells him to stand up and walk. And in 7, it happens immediately. Five times, Acts tells us the man walks. Five times. They, they don't want you to miss this. In fact, in verse 8, he's jumping and leaping. <laughs> It's immediate. There's no PT needed. No physical therapy. I notice in verses 8 and 9, we're told that he's praising God. It's, it's repeated twice. And in verse 9, it says, All the people saw him, and they recognized him. <laughs> it's not one or two. You could say they were smoking mushrooms. I don't know. Uh, they missed it. No, no. All of them understood. <laughs> they remember... You know, you're ushering your wife away. Oh, move out of the way. He's unclean. We just got the baptism to go into the temple. Don't touch us. You get the idea. Oh, there's that beggar again. Everyone moves to the right. <laughs> they knew who he was. They recognized. In fact, the text tells us they saw him. They understood this is the one who was there begging at the gate. We're told in the text that while the man was hanging on to Peter and John, don't you love this? All the people completely astounded ran together to them in the covered walkway called Solomon's portico. I have to show you where this is because this is significant. Notice where it is. It's inside the temple complex. It's the first time this lame man, because he's encountered Jesus, is able to enter and worship the Lord. And no wonder he's praising God. And he's hanging on to Peter and John. Uh, this is fantastic. 40 years he's been lame. 40 years he's been dependent on others. And now he's been set free. As glorious as this is, it's only a prelude to the sermon that Peter is now going to give. 
and I want you to check this out. Look at verse 12. When Peter saw this, and the question is this, I believe it's, um, well, he says, why are you amazed at this? I don't think it's just that the, the lame man has been restored. I think he's, Peter's saying, you, you've heard about Jesus of Nazareth raising from the dead. You, you've seen what's been happening in the early church, verses, or chapters 1 and 2. He says, why are you all amazed? You men of Israel, why do you stare at us, at us as if we made this man walk? Peter's very clear. We didn't do it. It's Christ. It's who is Jesus and why is he important? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you, this is not how to win friends and influence people, all right? He goes right for the juggler. You you handed him over, rejected in the presence of Pilate after he decided to release him. You've rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who would be a murderer to be released. You killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. I hope you caught the gospel. Jesus came, he died, and he rose from the dead. There it is. And on the basis of faith, don't miss this, verse 16, in Jesus' name, his very name has made this man, exhibit A, whom you see and know, strong. <laughs> the faith that is through Jesus has given him the complete health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as your rulers did as well. But the things of God foretold long ago through all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. And here it is. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins might be wiped out or eradicated. <laughs> Peter looks at this crowd, his fellow ethnic brothers, Remember, the, the early church starts at 100% Jewish, and we see God moving in among the Jewish people to bring Gentiles into the fold, and that's part of why the book of Acts is written, to show how that develops. But here, Peter's addressing this Jewish audience, and he says, listen, you, you know the God of our patriarchs. You, you know the one who keeps his promises, and I wish we had time to unfold the Old Testament text here that are, are alluded to. One, we, you see here it says, he glorified his servant Jesus. I believe that's a direct link with Isaiah 53, which we looked at on Good Friday. This is the suffering servant, the one who was promised, who would be bruised, but would take away the sins of the world. God has promised and he has fulfilled. And despite his plan, you bristled. He lays four accusations or charges at their feet. Did you catch that? Number one, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You're Messiah. You handed him over to be killed. Secondly, you disowned him before Pilate. Third, you asked for Barabbas in the first century for capital punishment. The Romans permitted it. That is that the local yokels could say, hey, we don't want this guy to be crucified. We want this guy. And so they chose Barabbas, who was a known murderer, thief, over Jesus. And the fourth accusation is you caused the death of the author of life. Irony. <laughs> you left one who took life to be set free and condemned the giver of life. That is Jesus. 
There's more irony here, though, in, con in contrast. Think about this for a minute. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jewish people, glorified Jesus, the promised Messiah, and yet the Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus and handed him over to a Gentile governor by the name of Pilate. <laughs> they rejected the holy and righteousness, righteous one for a bum, for Barabbas. And God raised the originator of life where they sought to kill him. And yet we see, Peter says, God's plan was not thwarted. In fact, he says of this audience, he says, number one, your past actions do not nullify who Jesus is and why he's important. We live in a world where the name Jesus is utilized as a curse word, where it's mocked and ridiculed. Perhaps you even saw last week a protest where a Bible was destroyed out in New York. While I hate to hear my Savior's name used in disregard, I hurt because such individuals fail to understand the power of the name, Jesus. It made a lame man, lame man walk. <laughs> it made him whole. And if you know Jesus this morning, you can say, yeah, he, he saved me. He's healed me as well. Jesus' name is mentioned several times Throughout, In fact, if we were to look at the rest of Peter's sermon here in Acts 3, you'll want to note the names given to Jesus. They're significant. The layman responded in faith, and Jesus came to this world, not to heal the healthy, but the sick. And so, they didn't thwart God's plan. And secondly, their ignorance does not nullify who Jesus is and why he's important. Verse 17, Peter's a little gracious with him. He says, I understand you, you, you didn't fully comprehend, but you're still held culpable. And you may have done the Google search this week and see, yeah, who is this Jesus? I don't understand. You're still held accountable because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes will not perish. If you don't believe, you can fill in the blank, <laughs> the judgment that looms. And so, what, is, what are we called to do? And Peter says, repent and turn back so that your sins will be wiped out. Repentance in, in the New Testament is, is a change of direction. It's changing one's mind. And here the turning, I would argue, is the idea of faith. Biblical repentance is not mere regret or remorse. That was Judas after he realized what had transpired. But it's a genuine change of mind about our sins and about the Savior which must follow. That's what happened to the lame man. He understood. <laughs> Money, forget it. I want this Jesus. And the power that comes. A man who was a social outcast now is clean and could go and worship the Lord. Well, you say, thanks, Hophaditz. I wasn't in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It sounds very interesting What's the implication for me? There in your notes, there's three applications. The first of these is the message of Easter is a story of God's faithfulness despite humanity's failures and rejections. 
The religious rulers should have fell at Jesus' feet. Palm Sunday, they should have been joining the crowd saying, yes, hail to the king, the son of David. No, they were, they were this shouldn't be. <laughs> and the Lord says, if, if they don't give praise, the stones will give praise to who I am. Similar to the lame man, we have been born in sin. Ephesians 2 is very clear. Or David's prayer in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shaped in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Think about this. The beggar, he, he could have done all that he wanted, but he couldn't walk. And on that alone, he was barred from the temple. You might be the most generous, joyful, honest person, but I hate to tell you, you ain't perfect. And I see some spouses nodding their heads, yes. <laughs> we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And consequently, we are barred from the presence of God and his righteousness. The only remedy is found in Christ. Peter gives this sermon later in the New Testament. He writes two letters, First and Second Peter, that are included in the New Testament canon. And in 1 Peter 1, he makes this statement, knowing that you were ransomed, he's referring to his, the audience, he says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, we were louses. <laughs> Not with, and he says, it wasn't, listen to what he says, you weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold. I can't help but think he's thinking back to Acts 3. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him, listen to this, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the story of Easter. Christ came. He died on a cross and he rose from the grave. And if we repent and believe, we too will find healing. Do not wallow begging for money. <laughs> Do not wallow in physical, spiritual ailment. The spirituality of, of, of the sickness of thinking, oh, you know, I, I'm going to try to remedy this with X, Y, and Z. No, no, no. Turn to the Lord. The message of Easter dispels the lie that one's self-righteousness does not need the saving, enabling grace of Christ. The crowd that gathered outside Solomon's portico would have undoubtedly included some priests. They knew the scriptures well. And they failed to recognize their need for Jesus. It was the same issue with the, the, the beggar. Not until Peter and John elaborated. The, be the beggar responds, the religious rulers do not. And it's interesting in 3, and if we were going to chapter 4, we see that after Peter gives his sermon, Peter and John, they're arrested. <laughs> and they're locked up for the night. And then eventually they're released the next morning. There's a, a hearing with the religious rulers. And do you know, as you look at chapter 4, it's amazing. They recognized they were ordinary men. That is Peter and John. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they recognized that the, this man standing with them was healed. It's amazing. And yet they refused to believe. 
The same message that condemns is also the same message that provides hope. Both the layman and the religious rulers had one thing in common. They all suffered from spiritual terminal cancer. And the only way to eradicate it, the only solution, is in a resurrected Savior. <laughs> so, similar to Peter and John, I have nothing to offer you. <laughs> it's the Lord. It's his power and his command that's saying to you in the utter helplessness, misery and hopelessness, perhaps even in your despair this morning, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The message of Easter is a story of glorious hope. And this is the third point in your notes, that while we die, those who've placed their faith in Christ will rise to everlasting life. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice. As followers of Jesus, we should be the most joyful folks walking this globe. <laughs> should we not? Yes. Charles Spurgeon made this statement, English minister from the 1800s. He says, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. This is Easter. Do not lose sight to the answers of who is this Jesus and why is he important? Our Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came to take the penalty for our sin by dying on a cross, but then three days later he rose from the dead. For indeed he is risen, he is risen indeed. <laughs> Father, we thank you. Nestled here in the book of Acts is a, a visual of the power of your son's name, Jesus, who brings healing to a man who has been born lame. And Lord, we too have been born, we've been born with sin, separated from you. Ephesians 2 said we were dead in sin. And the only way that life could be done is because it says there in Ephesians 2, but God, that is you, rich in your mercy and grace, gave us your son, Jesus. You sent him to earth. He willingly went to the cross. And three days later, he came out of that tomb. He is victorious. And Lord, we rejoice and we thank you. In the name of the one who has conquered death, our Savior Jesus, we pray. 